Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown, and this is the final podcast of the year. And I hope you're going to find something inspirational to carry you from this very hard time that we're in over the last almost two years now into perhaps a more hopeful, welcoming, safe, healthy new year. So I hope you'll sit back and take a listen. My guest today is Dr. Miko Rose. Dr. Rose is an assistant dean of clinical education at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences College of Osteopathic Medicine and an associate professor at the Michigan State University Department of Psychiatry. She is nationally board certified in psychiatry and neurology, having completed her training at Michigan State University. She has served as council member for the American Psychiatric Association Committee for Geriatric Psychiatry, and the Council on Communications. She serves on the National Board of Medical Examiners as appointed faculty writing and creating standards for National Medical Board Examinations. Dr. Rose is also the creator and program director of the JOY Initiative, a project she started at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and College of Osteopathic Medical Schools. In 2013, she was awarded the SAMHSA American Psychiatric Association Minority Leadership Fellowship Grant, from which she built the foundation to develop emotional resilience, happiness, and mindfulness trainings tailored to meet the unique needs of medical providers. She now offers one of the first formal classes on happiness and joy in medical schools in the nation, which she has been teaching as for a four-credit class in two medical schools for the past seven years. This curricula has since expanded to provide training for peak performance for team coaches, trainers, and student-athletes. Most recently, Dr. Rose received an award as one of the top medical educators in the country. The National American Osteopathic Medical Educator Fellowship Teaching Award, which is a five-year fellowship. Prior to entering medical school, Dr. Rose worked as a program officer, fundraiser, and advocate for the underserved with a focus on overcoming domestic violence and trauma. She has over 25 years of experience and formal education in life coaching, drawing upon her experiences with underserved communities. She now creates and facilitates happiness training programs for medical providers and trainees across the country. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Miko Rose. Hi, Miko. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. And for those listening, this will air right before the new year. So I think this is a perfect time to talk about how to take care of ourselves. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, before we dive in, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you chose your path to psychiatry. Like so many things in life, 
I had this very specific plan of entering primary care, working with the underserved. I had this vision of going to rural sites and and being the 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 doctor who visits people in their homes and stumbles over chickens and farms to to help people with their physical health healthcare needs. And entered a a residency in internal medicine in Oregon. I soon found that most of my patients had primary challenges in mental health, and and I will often hear from students and my colleagues alike that that you can have a plan and then the universe just kind of has a different plan. And so I really feel like ultimately psychiatry and mental health chose me. What I found was time and time again, as I moved towards primary care and was even entering the field in formal practice in an internal medicine residency, the majority of my patients' problems and from a DO osteopathic approach, if we looked at underlying all these surface problems, what is the key core lesion? What lies beneath as the key problem that upon which if we can identify further and further down to get to the root, get to the root, get to the root, almost every single patient for me and who I saw in my clinical practice as an internal medicine resident was that their problems were based in mental health and psychiatry. And that if I could get to that key core lesion, everything else unraveled. And and, and from there, everything opened up. When I was struggling trying to treat people's non-mental health problems and their physical challenges of of diet, exercise, all kinds of challenges, even just working with the medications, I found it time and time again. And if I I didn't personally first address their mental health, I couldn't go anywhere. I also found that my patients were just kind of through my natural personality would just open up and I'd ask them about, you know, signs of appendicitis or typical blood pressure screening, doing all my bread and butter, diligent internal medicine residency questions. And they would start talking about trauma and abuse and being locked up in a bathroom and beaten and all kinds of unbelievable traumas that they had been through just through the nature of my personality and who I am. Patients just started saying, you know, Dr. Rose, I'm sorry, I know you're talking about blood pressure, but I just really need to talk with someone and I feel like you would understand. So ultimately, although I had a different plan, I felt like big picture, the practice of psychiatry and mental health found me because as my patients portrayed in their actions, that's what I naturally had an affinity to do. And that was where for so, so many patients I saw the key core problems could be unleashed and unfold so that patients could find ways to do other aspects of their physical health and get better and more well from a place and of, of mental health being much stronger. So the field kind of found me and I, I really resisted and ended up switching residencies from internal medicine into psychiatry and, and have never looked back. Well, it's kind of nice having had that primary care background because I imagine that you're really good at being able to partner up with primary care colleagues because you feel their pain. I mean, you know the walk they walk. And I know um, the psychiatrists that I've talked to that are double boarded in peds, it's like they have this little window in. But I I think about you, it's sort of the, uh, if you build it, they will come, you know, if you ask it, they will tell. And um, my, my staff used to say, Leah, don't you know, it's just a sore throat. Don't ask them if they're depressed. <laughs> but, you know, you start looking for it, you start doing it, you sort of start being open and, you know, people are looking for relief. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so my training in primary care has served me incredibly well, working with residents, working in training, and then obviously working with patients for collaborative care and knowing the overlay between what symptoms and signs patients are demonstrating that are truly mental health elements that I need to treat with psychiatric medications 
versus signs and symptoms that I can do all the mindfulness, life coaching, training, and medication management in the world. And yet if they don't address X, Y, or Z of primary medical problems and ideologies, I would be yet again, sort of running in circles, trying to fix something that perhaps that's not the core ideology. So, so the real key for the primary care background and training was that it helped me see what were the cases where this was in fact, not a primary mental health. Right. Right. Kind of origin. Yeah. Help you sort of kind of tease that out. And you mentioned you were interested in underserved populations and in fact did some work with patients with domestic violence, federally qualified health center, and and some of those other environments where they're perhaps an at-risk population. Yes. How does that kind of inform what you do now? Yeah. So at-risk populations, it's a sort of fascinating conversation in and of itself, right? Because we can have folks that are at risk and they don't sit, they don't fit any singular demographic that puts them more at risk. And yet they're silently suffering because they have labels and isms that that create a stigma to even disclose. I'm certainly working in some of the underserved populations. I have I would go into clinic and go into work. And even before I entered medical school, I was working in several nonprofits focused on helping the underserved. And every week from the time that I started working in underserved communities, before I even went to medical school, I think, you know, I just heard the worst story that I've ever heard. That's it. I'm good. Check the box. That's the worst story. Two weeks later, okay, now I've heard the worst story I've ever heard in my life. And that, that common theme of seeing people just decimated on the level of just, not just the psyche, but on the level of a soul where they have lost beyond what they thought was losing everything and then would lose even more. And seeing clients, patients, so many different settings of people just being broken down to to the bare minimum and then trying to find tools to help them survive, of seeing inspirational stories of patients who came to me when they themselves found ways to survive and turn around, that became sort of the, the real seed for me that was my inspiration to, to enter psychiatry, although the field started coming after me way before I was inspired. Yes. So, so, so the piece of working with the underserved that it's been so phenomenal for me has been really breaking it down into when people have little to nothing or very few resources, where do we begin and how? And sometimes that's been incredibly overwhelming. How can I work on someone's mental health and giving them medications, some of which require food, when I'm not sure or I'm unfortunately confident that they're not eating and have access to basic resources like food and nutrition on a regular basis. In the state of Michigan, during COVID particularly, there were food shortages. We just had so many challenges working with these communities and groups. It's very hard to work on someone's psychiatric mental health when they don't have their basic needs being met. And so this became more and more of a collaborative conversation working with patients, working with community resources to get patients the things that they needed, like basic safety, shelter, even food, and from there working on their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I think that that I, I just sort of knowing, I like what you said, sort of the worst story ever. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but then there's this whole resilience. And I think certainly in the field of pediatrics, there are big questions about how do we address poverty? How do we address racism, child health reform and transformation? And, and, you know, like when you're in the trenches, like, how do I combat poverty? But I think there are steps you can take. And I did an interview just a couple before this, where the biggest thing that he said is let parents lead the discussion. So if you ask them, you know, what's your biggest concern today? And you might have to 
not necessarily pro, but you might have to give the language to be able to talk about food insecurity. But like you said, I mean, if you're hungry, I mean, you're not going to do your homework. You know, there's just those things. And I think we do have to make it part of our problem because, you know, you can't begin to address the other stuff if those basic needs aren't met. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, interestingly, it's, 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 it's a bi-directional piece towards wellness, right? So we have people who don't, so many right now, patients and clients who aren't having their basic, basic fundamental human need, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? They, sure. they don't even have the basics of like the food and shelter, the very base of the pyramid for subsistence. And yet then we have the hedonistic treadmill where people have so many things and so many resources, and so many food options that they struggle with obesity or they struggle with um, just credit, you know, credit card, just overconsumption, not just of food, but material goods. They have so many things that then they, they sit and they meditate and they decide to simplify and get rid of all those belongings. And as we talk about coming up on, on this new year and the, the timing of when this podcast will be airing, one of the things that you mentioned of, you know, don't ask about depression and knowing when to ask is often just the simplest things. And that it wasn't so much just what I said to my patients, but what I didn't say and how I said it and allowing for the space in between. So when I'd sit with a patient, whether it's meeting with them for the first time or the 25th session week after week where we were having discussions about opiate pain medication contracts and whatnot, I would always start with that beginner's mind. And I would just ask, how are you? And well, I would, yeah, and you're asking yeah. it. What they must know is that you want to hear it, and yes. you're okay if they say, "I'm not great," because yes. I think that you know when we do screenings, you know we're doing screenings because we're supposed to, but what we're really like in terror of is, oh my god, what if they say yes? What if they say they aren't doing well, but they understand that you, when you ask, you really want to know, and that must kind of make an opening for them then to let down their guard and share. Yes. Yes. And, and rather than how are you doing and then jumping right into a series of questions, actually being fully present in the room, making eye contact and allowing that pause for them to respond. Yeah. And that, that's hard for some of us. I I'm, can be guilty of not always having the pregnant yes. pause where you just take time. Well, let's talk a little bit about kind of now the caregivers ourselves. And yeah. I mean, in order to do the work, I mean, you can do it when you're in your own struggles, but we're at our best if we're, if we're okay. And so kind of peddling it back to med school residency, I mean, it's a grind and it can almost destroy your soul at times. And it's very hard to ask for help. And, and I know you work with a lot of students at Michigan State University and actually talk about classes and happiness. What's that about? Is there such a thing in medical school? Can you have happiness? <laughs> yes. So I went into a psychiatric residency after completing my internship here in internal medicine, was out at Michigan State University. And after being so excited and delighted to be accepted into psychiatry, started, you know, they had those check boxes of one of the major life stressors, like the greatest life stressors you can have in one's life. And you check the box of the three or four things or four or five major life stressors. I had like all four or five, and there were a few that I hadn't even known could exist in one's life. And I started going through unbelievable personal stressors and challenges. And I started looking at my patients in these inpatient beds and I started feeling the weight of it all. My personal stress, 
my life of just in and out of a legal battle, loss of a child, family member stress, moving, financial, I mean, just you name it. And I had challenges that people would say, my, my attendings would say when I just gave them the brief overview of what I was doing and why I would be out for a certain week or meeting or whatever was going on. Um, they said, you know, you can't make this up, Dr. Rose. <laughs> they were telling this to me and I was supposed to be talking with them about the patients, but the, the challenge was I was, I was, I was having my own personal struggles and I didn't actually talk about the details of it too, too much with attendings because of the nature of our field. And yet I was looking at patients in the psychiatric wards inpatient, myself as a doctor and listening to their challenges thinking, wow, I'm supposed to help them. And everything that they're talking about is the reasons that they just attempted to kill themselves. I, the things that they're talking about, they don't even, my problems are so much more challenging. And yet I'm here supposed to help them. And I would look at them and have these moments that I immediately went into compassion because I understood what it felt like to feel broken and to feel alone and to feel like there was no hope. It was this paradoxical odd moment of inspiration where because I was starting to feel broken open, as Elizabeth Wasser referred to inside, I started to have more compassion for people who are suffering. So on one hand, I thought, wow, like they don't even have it that bad. And they're like barely getting by. And it sort of gave me a bolster of confidence that I must have had some resilience inside of me that I didn't feel at the time, but I was getting out of bed and doing my work. And yet at the same time, I was silently suffering and telling very, very few people about what was going on in my personal life, because I had to show up for my patients and help them with their mental health. Paradoxically, I'd look at them sitting in the bed, sitting in the inpatient hospital and in the rooms, and I would think, wow, if I don't change my life, this is going to be me. Mm. This is going to be me. And I know that all the traditional tools and models that we have to help people are not going to work for me because I've been doing that. And I still was really, really struggling to have a different way to view my life and to deal with my own well-being. So I started to turn beyond traditional therapies into life coaching wellness programs, right? It isn't just about talking about and restructuring some of the cognitive thinking that I have, because even with all the restructuring of cognitive thinking, I was still in some real unbelievable challenges. It's, I started to turn to other pieces of life coaching, like finding purpose and meaning in one's life in spite of the incredible challenges, looking at resilience training theories, reading some of the unique original Origin, origin authors of happiness study, everything from Aristotle and Plato to Viktor Frankl to some of the modern, more popular positive psychology authors today. And I started to piece together what I found to be the top demonstrated techniques for improving one's well-being with the greatest efficacy in improving one's well-being, obviously in the shortest period of time, right? We don't have the luxury as doctors to sit in the Himalayas and meditate for two weeks nonstop, although that would have been lovely. And from that, I developed a whole curriculum that I started as a pilot project intervention. And I created a 10-week program with the top 10 themes of happiness and well-being and techniques that could be used. I was very fortunate to get a very generous grant from the American Psychiatric Association as a diversity minority leadership fellow and had a fellowship grant that I could use to take all kinds of happiness coaching programs and trainings for which I sought out all the teachers and mentors who were the top in their field and happiness will be have since become close friends with many of them and got permission from them to adapt their techniques and interventions to medical students and towards medicine. And I would say, hey, I'm a medical resident. I'd like to do this for medical students. Would it, could I have your permission to use this work? And they would help me tailor those interventions to, to medicine and medical trainees and practicing clinicians. So I was fortunate 
and very unfortunate to be an incredible challenge. But I had this end of one and then expanded to this end of now hundreds who have all been using techniques that go significantly beyond the traditional therapy and psychotherapy modalities of life coaching techniques and in combination mindfulness, which back in the day when I had started doing this was not a traditional modality that's being taught and tested in the medical education forms. Now, flash forward 12 years later, you could throw a stone and groups are having mindfulness classes and, and, and all kinds of interventions. And yet when I started that back in 2010, that was certainly not the norm for medical education. And when I did a literature review on well-being interventions for medical students, I found one pilot study of like 20 or 25 students. And then looking for life coaching interventions for medical students and medical trainees, I found nothing in 2010. Wow. It's interesting. Back in May, I did a podcast with Christopher Veal, who's a, Mm -hmm. he was a medical student at the time, now a resident who wrote a a piece called We Break, We Burn Out, We Break, We Die, and struggled with his own suicidal ideation. But he found nothing to support him. There was so much shame and it really took getting to that point. And he reached out to someone and was able to kind of climb back up. And now he speaks a lot. And, but, you know, this idea that normalizing this stuff, and, and I think you're right, it's not just, this isn't just about meditation, getting a pedicure and getting a massage. I mean, this is way bigger than that. And somehow, and I I think it's probably still an uphill climb that this isn't just like touchy feely stuff that is kind of a frill but that it's really essential. And Mm -hmm. and how do you sell that? I mean, if you had any luck with graduate medical education, like that this is now like a required part of the curriculum, do you think that'll happen? Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, when we look at long-term outcomes, I believe that mental health, particularly for clinicians, and especially now during the squeeze and essentially what is a mental health stress test for the brains of mental health providers physicians, clinicians, and medical students alike, is that much like ED visits now being scaled back in preventative care services finally being covered when we looked at meta-analyses of insurance coverages of folks who didn't have preventative care and how often they ended up in the ED and eventually now preventative care services are, you know, have, have since been covered. I think similarly, we're going to be seeing similar things for mental health providers, healthcare practitioners, medical students, providers alike. You know, with, with the Linda, the, the Linda Burn aspect, right? That that created a whole series of conversations around the crisis of mental health of our healthcare providers, ourselves being included in that. That we're one of the beans in that soup. So we've both experienced that. And just like eventually, preventative care got covered by insurances because when they looked at the risks versus the benefits and the overall costs of how many patients were ending up in the ED because they weren't getting preventative care, we as a subset population are starting to follow that in our numbers, right? The suicide hotlines are ringing off the hook. I mean, we are, the, the funding now is being increased because of the incredible crisis of mental health of providers. So I don't think it's a, you know, a predictive woo-woo, oh, we all meditate. I think preventative mental health 
because we as a population of physicians and practicing clinicians are in mental health emergency, I don't think it's a conversation that's going to be that debatable. I think give it a couple months or a year or two, these types of things will be required as part of preventative mental health, right? I'm not saying that people have to like sit on a stone and meditate and pray to some guru or something they don't believe in. Mindfulness, it doesn't have to be that complex. It's just a technique to just allow for being present for a few moments a day. It's actually much more simple and has a lot more simplicity than people realize. And so do I think that it's possible? Absolutely. I think it's inevitable. And it sounds like not only possible, but necessary. I mean, and yeah, I mean, I think that there's this idea of, you know, mental health crisis, which has I mean, I think honestly, it's it's not like this is new. I mean, it's been brewing for a long time. I mean, we know for who knows what all the reasons are, but, you know, the AAP and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psych- Psychiatry had a declaration of a, a disaster declaration of a mental health crisis. Yeah. So, you know, there's this sort of national call to action, but the the piece that I think you're talking about is that's great that we have a call to action, but you can't, you know, be actionable or, you know, provide the action if you're not okay, if you're not in a good, I mean, I was thinking about when you're talking to your patients who you recognize are having all these traumas and stuff, and you're sitting with that on the inside, knowing your own self, and you're giving advice to people about what they can do to feel better. And you're not doing that for yourself, because you just don't feel like there's time or that it's allowed allowable. Well, let's talk about the joy initiative. Talk about that. What, what is it? Well, and that was the piece. And just to to clarify, I was able to start doing those, but I did it through my work, right? So I was realizing that if I didn't do things differently, working with these patients, I would myself end up being a patient in the psych ward, right? And seriously, if I was lucky, right? Because as doctors, if we want to kill ourselves, we know how to do it, right? That's not picking up seven or eight. I mean, I knew exactly how I would be able to kill myself should I hit a point of reaching that choice. And so for me, and coming full circle to your question around joy initiative, I actually knew that and then started to take the steps into finding purpose and meaning, doing all of these techniques for life coaching interventions for myself, and then creating the classes from that. So for me, part of my sense of purpose and meaning was that my personal suffering where I was very much alone and suffering quietly, particularly in the medical profession, I knew that ultimately nobody needs to be alone just because we're expected to be superheroes, right? The the funny thing about movies of superheroes, right? We never see them go to the bathroom. We never see it get ugly. We never see them have diarrhea. I mean, it's very, maybe they vomit a poison, but then they're fine. They get up and they fly away. And similarly, I knew that we needed to have safe spaces and open arenas where we could talk and be vulnerable and open with ourselves and with each other. And so that was the birthing place of the joint initiative programming. It was very much evidence-based, based on research and data on efficacy and top-tested interventions for wellness and well-being, but it was also very personally inspired. So it started with a pilot project of these interventions that I sat down with a wonderful mentor, Dr. Dale DeMello. I don't know if you've already interviewed him already, but he's a phenomenal psychiatrist. We set up a research study to test these interventions. I worked with medical students. We looked at their indices and levels of happiness, well-being, as well as other aspects of, of like depression and anxiety to check their elements of mental health measures before, during, and after the intervention. Also had a control group for comparison, had some wonderful results that demonstrated that the interventions were in fact 
quite efficacious in improving well-being and decreasing levels of anxiety and depression. And then from that pilot started having monthly meetings with administration and student groups just sitting around, like sitting around tables in a circle, almost like a campfire, and started talking and having conversations every month, bringing in mentors, continuing the conversation of wellness and well-being. From there, was it invited to do a formal elective based on the intervention I had done of this pilot study, took the direct interventions that I'd studied and created from the pilot and made it into just like copied and pasted and put it in an elective format on MSU letterhead and submitted it for review for an elective. It was approved, started out at the CHM College of Human Medicine has since been instituted both at CHM and COM, so both at the osteopathic and allopathic institutions since 2005. Last year, I taught the seventh round. Next year in the, in the spring, we'll starting we call it the spring, but it's January, February, we'll be teaching the eighth round in year. Continues to evolve. For the first five years, it was almost the exact same curricula of mindfulness interventions and life coaching well-being interventions that people can do on a week-by-week, day-by-day basis with five to 10 minutes of homework a day and started doing that and working with students. And since then, it's been something of a movement that started back with the pilot project in class. Now I teach the elective every year and students, we have meetings every month or two with students and faculty around well-being. I would think that they would be clamoring for this. I mean, it just sounds like such a ah, relief. So what about the rest of us that aren't med students and residents? Is this where, where can we find this opportunity? Is there something out there for the rest of us? Yes. So if, if folks go onto the webpage, joyinitiative.com and sign up for the mailing list, or they can email me at Rose at gmail.com. They can send me an email and say, hey, I'd like to join the elective. I'm happy to send a Zoom link. It's, it's starting up in, in January. Again, we'll do a four-week elective. And then many students and community members who just come in and audit will stay in touch. And I have every month or every other month, we have some sort of gatherings talking about wellness and well-being initiatives, have guest speakers, and just come together with different themes depending on the time of year. Often meeting on Zoom, obviously with covid to continue the conversation of things that we can be doing for our own well-being. Same format, whether it's a formal class or a group discussion, starting with a meditation, having some check-ins, some sort of activity, exercise and teaching, and then ending with some sort of homework and integration. So what are you going to do when people take a listen to this and they're all want to sign up? I mean, do you have a limited number of enrollments? And also, we do not. What <laughs> that's about, the beauty of Zoom. Yeah. That's what about beauty. what about like how do you spread this so that this is widely available? I mean, as one individual, I mean, you know, if all medical schools wanted to do this, how would that happen? I mean, how do you expand what you're doing? So the beauty of being a part of a movement is that it hasn't been just me. Back in 2010, I thought it was just me, right? And and it may have been at that time. I didn't see any other research studies come out. But as you well know, it takes a while for a study to come out. So in 2010, when you looked, the research would have had to start around 2007 or 8. At the time that I started work in 2010, people said, oh, that's very interesting, but it might be better for social workers or nurses, but not doctors. Obviously, that conversation. Yeah, we don't need it, right? We don't. Other people do. Take it to someone else. That's so. There are so many different groups and institutions that are offering wellness programming certification. I was very fortunate to receive a grant to complete wellness institution leadership training from Stanford, where they offer CME informal training on institutionalization of wellness programs. I'd already done a lot of institutionalization of wellness programs at Michigan State University. However, there are schools and programs now that are are 
certifying people to create these programs. And ultimately you don't at this moment need the certification. It's really finding methods and techniques that work for your own well-being. And it's almost always a combination of mindfulness, some sort of regular mindfulness practice to allow one's mind to clear, some sort of formal practice towards purpose and meaning, additional practices towards self-care and checking in, and then integration with community, right? Like those are the four tiers for any wellness program that I've seen, regardless of whether you seek certification or community gatherings. What we've seen across the the, the board with the data and meta-analyses of interventions is that the act of people coming together and having any kind of well-being programming tends to work with some inflections and nuances of efficacy, but as long as the basic pillars are met for well-being interventions, there doesn't tend to be huge, huge differences in, in the outcomes and efficacy. So there's not one particular, I mean, obviously I'm biased, I think that the program I've created is the best and, and invite everyone to come along. And yet just coming together in a group discussion with self-compassion and tools for communication and conflict resolution, since they inevitably come up in group teams and meeting on a regular basis to guide teams to find their own methods of well-being. I could work with one group and the secret to their success and well-being might be collaborative community group um, transportation for childcare, right? Because it's a group of moms, working nurses, and that's the best thing they could do. For another group, it may be potlucks and bringing dinners. For another group, it may be they just want like a $20 gift card every month from Starbucks and they're going to meet once or twice a month at a Starbucks. Everyone has their different way of finding wellness and well-being. And what's most important is that people are able to have the conversations openly and honestly to connect, to talk about what their needs are. I've actually found that in working with groups and creating these programs, groups come up with their own ideas the best rather than me saying, here's the Dr. Roseway and what I did. Rather, here are the tools and the mainstays and the foundations of what will make just about any group have some sense of wellness and well-being. How does that look and fit in for you? And from there, groups find their own directives and issues that work best based on who they are and their needs. I love that. I, I want to ask you to repeat again, what were the four the four tiers that you mentioned? So it's so first you have to have a mission and a vision, right? Second, you have to have some way to reflect, right? So that's typically mindfulness, can also be like introspective journaling, right? Then you need some aspect of self-care or intervention or some sort of programming that helps you get towards your goals, right? Then fourth, you need some sort of conflict resolution or some sort of communication tools. Some examples of that might be NVC, nonviolent communication, conflict resolution, crucial conversations, right? Um, I've even developed techniques that are just very simple interventions for, I call it the turnaround, right? Like how do you redefine it? Just any kind of troubleshooting and redirecting during a challenge, right? Those are the four mainstays for any type of programming groups. They have a mission and a vision that ideally has to be shared, some form of introspection and self-assessing, right? That would be as doctors, a time that we're assessing ourselves, right? That's often mindfulness and sitting in silence. For others, it could just be journaling and free flow writing. Third, self-care are some ways to actually institute programming to improve one's wellness. So self-care, sense of meaning, sense of accomplishment, all kinds of ways that people can do their own interventions based on what's most important, but some elements of self-care. And then troubleshooting, conflict resolution, you know, it's almost identical to a, a model for, for medical care for patients. We just need to do that for ourselves. I love, in my head, I'm thinking, first of all, it's like, okay, 
if I'm in my own practice, is this something I could do with my partners? And then I'm wondering, could this be like an echo project where you work with groups and so you're able to do that sort of spoken model? Like, so, I mean, just as myself and as uh, other listeners out there and as a gift to them, if they could start today and do something to move towards well-being, where, where would you guide people to start? Well, we can do one right now if you want, just like a one to three minute meditation that I, you know, this, this one's very simple. So often in this arena, although I don't want to presume, I mean, if listeners have enough time to listen to podcasts, hopefully they're not in crisis, right? But the most common <laughs> one that I do, right, is sort of calming down the crisis, right? And there's a couple of different techniques and things that we can do, and we can just kind of take this. The first thing that I encourage people to do, and now we're from Michigan, so we have a lot of folks who hunt and see deer, right? After, right after stress, deer will shake, right? You'll notice they kind of shake their heads, shake their little tail, tails and lips look like feathers. So the first thing is to just kind of shake your body, right? And if you're able to bounce around, just kind of bounce around. And if you could see us, we're both shaking. Yeah, we're bouncing and shaking, right? And then you're going to have intentional tension and release, right? So if you're able to really think this through, it's going to be tensing the muscles of your body, starting with your feet and just rolling those muscles and tension up. So tense your feet, tense your shins and calves, tense your thighs, buttocks, chest, stomach, shoulders, arms, hands, face, scrunch it up and just breathe in and just tense up from feet all the way up to your head and just breathe in, hold it tense and tight, tense and tight, and then relax, breathe out and just let all that drain and do it again. Breathe in, tense your feet, calves, thighs, buttocks, bellies, chest, arms, face, neck, and let it go. Do that a couple of times, just to really allow tension in and out of your body. Breathe in, tense every muscle, let go. And one more time, tense, breathe in, and let go. Just allowing the space and just bringing your awareness to your breathing. You may want to just relax your neck, roll your head and shoulders, bring your shoulders up. If you've been wearing shoulders as earrings, we want to just bring our shoulders up and back down. Put one hand on your heart, one hand on your body. If you're comfortable just closing your eyes for a few moments, just close your eyes and just feel your breath and just feel your belly. And just, I, most of us are sitting, if you're standing for the, the bouncing and, and, and tensing, just sit down. And, and part of sitting, it really allows us to let that belly get soft. And what this is doing osteopathically, biomechanically, breathing into the belly and allowing for deep belly breathing. Let that belly get soft and allow that hand to go in and out as you breathe. Osteopathically and biomechanically, the more you're able to open that belly, it opens the diaphragmatic cura, those spaces that may be when tense, clamping down on the vagus nerve. So opening up some of those spaces. There's a reason that the breath is called Buddha belly breathing and that Buddha has a big belly for happiness, right? It's this image of this big open expanse belly and just breathing into the belly and just breathe. And just for a few moments while breathing into your belly, just repeat the word in and out here as you breathe in now, as you breathe out, just here and now, if you have any thoughts, just allow those thoughts, just place them in a golden bubble and let that float away. Bring your attention just back to the words here and now we can just do that for like a minute, chanting here and now as you breathe in and out, here, now.
And that was one minute. Seems like forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that's, that's the power of a mindfulness meditation, right? All, All we had to do was just really get into our bodies, bring ourselves to the breath. And this is the moment, right? We feel like, oh, I don't have time to meditate, right? And yet when we can take that, it was a minute and I think about five seconds, I was looking at the clock just to do it exactly, but it's about 65 seconds that we just took. And for many of us, that could have felt like 15, 20 minutes. For me, absolutely. But you know, it's kind of an interesting, I, and the sound engineers that are editing this podcast may think that that's like, what is that pause? <laughs> you have to tell them like, no, I have to make sure it. that you know that that <laughs> is a mindfulness pause. It's like a little mini vacation that I bet you could take at least once a day. You could take it once a day. I, when I first started mindfulness meditation and had integrated into my practice, I had set my phone to have an alert saying, be here now at 8.30, 12.30, and 8 o'clock at night. And of course, it wasn't a loud, you know, alarming, <laughs> jarring sound, but it was just a gentle harp or something, just some very sweet, soothing sounds. And it would just pop up on my phone with a little bit of chimes, like, be here now. And I would just take a moment to reflect on whatever I was doing. And sometimes it would pop up when I was meeting with the patient in patient care. And while I couldn't close my eyes and immediately do belly breathing, it allowed me to refocus and make sure I was like, where is my belly right now? Where are my shoulders in relation to the chair? How are my eyes in relationship to the eye contact with this person that I'm speaking with? Am I fully here with them right now? Right? Because maybe my computer is crashing and the EHR was doing what EHRs do and all kinds of things are going around in the background while I'm having these precious moments with a patient or myself or in a meeting, whatever that is, just having these gentle reminders throughout the day to take that 65 second vacation two to three times a day. And hopefully many of you as listeners who've been able to take this pause have felt a change of state where time does stand still. And that's the beauty of power. Have you done this with patients? Yes. You've done yes, often. Yes. Especially when we're trying to get off benzodiazepines and other medications. Absolutely. Yes. And interestingly, for things like chronic pain, we know that mindfulness has better demonstrated efficacy over time over opiates and some of the other biochemical medical interventions that we have. I'm almost imagining in my head rounds, you know, with your attendings. And what if, you know, the attending who led the rounds just said, let's just take a pause. And, you know, let's just, I, there was a Dyke Drummond is a physician that wrote a whole bunch of stuff on burnout. And he talked about the squeegee breath where he would be with his, he would meet with his team in in the office and he would say, okay, we're going to take a squeegee breath together. And he would imagine that you had a squeegee and you'd start at the top of your head and, and just bring it all the way down. And, and you could do it with your, you know, your MA, your nurse, but somehow that this whole, like, let's all just take a breath together and, and somehow make that like an acceptable way. This is how we're going to all start. Yes. Yes. I recently did that in a meeting that I had had um, doing a presentation on happiness and well-being. And I started the discussion with mindfulness, right? Rather than introducing it and doing all the research and data, I said, we're just going to take a moment. And it was very powerful. You have a great voice for doing that. And (laughs) I know, I know I have found for people that want to have guided meditations. I know Calm is an app. Also Insight Timer, which is free. And there's like thousands of meditations. And I've sometimes found that helpful. I think the biggest thing for me 
and and not speaking for everybody else, but is just doing it regularly because it's like, oh, I can do it for three or four days. And then it's like, yeah, but I'm too busy. Well, am I really? (laughs) So how do you make it? How do you really make it become a practice? Yes. And UCLA has one of the, I've been using their meditations, Diana Winston, it's Mark, M-A-R-C dot UCLA dot E-D-U. I've been using their meditations with patients and medical students for years they have some wonderful ones. And yet you have to download the app. You have to think to press play. You have to have more than three to five minutes to think of doing it and doing it. The, the piece is that we don't need something outside of ourselves to be with ourselves. So the best thing that I've ever done was just set a reminder on my phone once to three times a day. Okay. I'm going to do it after we're done. <laughs> Just so how, how do people find you? I mean, I'm like, okay, I want to sign up for this. So how yes. do people do that? Is there a cost? What, what, what's involved in, in becoming part of this elective? So they can send me an email at MikaRose at gmail.com. I've also got a webpage, joyinitiative.com, J-O-Y-I-N-I-T-I-A-T-I-V-E, like initiative, joyinitiative.com. They can sign up for the mailing list. If they send me a personal email to mikarose at gmail.com and say, hey, I would love the Zoom link, let, let me know. I can get that information and have a chat. I also have a Facebook group that at the onset of COVID had done daily meditations during the initial lockdowns and quarantines with students all over the country and actually some other countries also included where every day I and some other students did a mindfulness meditation piece, a teaching for the day of some sort of introspection and a journaling prompt where we all meditated and journaled and wrote together for 78 days straight during the initial lockdowns. And so for folks who would like to have just some exposure, by all means, if you are a clinician, medical student, medical trainee, or avid supporter of our groups, send me an email. I'm happy to send you the link to to the invite for that group. And um, Lee, if you're able to... put the info on the chat. People can also just request to join directly from Facebook and we can. And I'll make sure I I put these links. Is there a cost for the program? Everything is free. So bless your heart. I can't believe that you do this for, for just the freeness of that. That's really generous of you. Thank you. Well, this is really great. And thank you for giving my day a little pause because I'm, I have a very busy mind and I know that gets in my way. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to start putting a prompt, like be, be here now. I love that. That's easy. Yes. And I will say it works better to be just something that pops up on your phone and goes away rather than a post-it. I've had the post-its and then the post-its become very not mindful, sure. right? You start having five different ones and they end up blending in with the floor or the ceiling or the wall and just your background. So yes, just wow. a simple, just a simple Alarm on your phone will do it and just taking a minute and just 60 seconds to stop and breathe. So here's the gift for the new year is take take a take a pause, take a little mind vacation and join Miko on her joy initiative and you can ride the ride too. So yes. thank you so much for your time. This is so lovely and what a what a nice gift that you've given listeners. I certainly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great what you do on this podcast. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. I loved this conversation with Miko and I'm hoping to put her on speed dial so that when I'm having a really tough day, I could just say, hey, will you walk me through a minute respite? So I want to grab onto the takeaways and share those with you as you put away 2021 and look forward to a more hopeful 2022. So number one, 
In much of medicine, as Dr. Rose described, the key correlation behind disease is mental health conditions or trauma. Number two, in her work with patients, Dr. Rose at times felt the weight of her own personal stress and felt broken. She recounts sitting with patients that were inpatient psychiatric units and thinking, you know, this could be me if I, if I don't figure a way to feel better. Number three, in the broken places, there is an opening for empathy and open she did. Number four, before chalking up this whole episode to something too touchy-feely, just remember that there is a body of research on the power of mindfulness. This is real science. Number five, to be a healer, and we are called to heal. We must seek our own healing. This begins in finding purpose and meaning that at times is lost in that grind and overwhelm of medical school, nursing school, PA school, residency, patient care, charting, and the never-ending empty in baskets. We're, we're just never done. There's always more. It's like dirty laundry. Number six, the JOY initiative began as a pilot to share personal suffering together in safe spaces, to be vulnerable, and to not be alone. I once heard Dr. Ned Hallowell speak, and he's a child psychiatrist, and he said something that really stuck with me, and that is never worry alone. We are not solitary beings. We are meant to live in communities. We're pack animals. And so it is better for us to worry together, to suffer together than it is to do those things alone. Number seven, the four tiers of the JOY initiative include defining a mission and vision, mindfulness, which can be reflection, journaling, that sort of thing, self-care, and that's really delving into what brings you joy. Is it creativity? Is it play? Not just, you know, getting a pedicure or going to the spa, although those are nice too, and conflict resolution. Number eight, we spent 65 seconds together and with you just breathing the mantra, be here now. It was a one-minute vacation. I think we can all find time throughout the day, just one minute. So set your phone alarm and just do it. Number nine, to start your mindfulness journey, check out the show notes for links to the Joy Initiative or just go to joyinitiative.com and join Dr. Rose for a free four-week elective to build your practice that begins in January. I've already signed up and I hope I will see you all there. So Again, at the end of this very long year, now pushing two years of the COVID pandemic, may you find joy in those that you love, time to hold them near, time to create new wishes and purpose as you enter 2022 with renewed hope and know that we are truly all in this together. So be well and please join me next week. I will have a whole new year of episodes for you, and I really am grateful to you all for being on this journey with me. It has been a true joy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.